What's up? Tom Tanneke here, recording the latest episode of the Pork and Feed the Birds as ever on unceded Indigenous lands. So we always like to start things off around here by paying out respects and gratitude to Aboriginal elders and the community of the lands upon which I record. It always was, it always will be Aboriginal lands. I went to a protest the other day. I hope many of you did as well. I was certainly trying to encourage people to do so. Um, You may have seen them online advertised as the Gamil means no protests. Um, Gamil does mean no, but it's also a play on words because part of the name Gamilaroi um, upon the lands upon which the particular project that's being protested uh, is the lands of the Gamilaroi people, and it's a Gamilaroi arranged series of protests that will continue into the future. What were they about? They're about the Narrabri Coal Seam Gas Project, which is a plan to build 850 gas wells in the Pillager Forest near Narrabri in in northwest New South Wales, and then connect them to the main New South Wales gas supply. Apparently going to help power gas to uh, 20 million homes for a few decades is the idea there. Um, how do you build gas wells? Well, you do that thing that you've heard about called fracking, don't you? That's where you recover gas from the ground, from shale rock, by bashing into it with a water mixture and with large machines. Um, you fuck the groundwater up doing that. Um, you may have heard that fracking is not very good for the environment. We don't like that kind of thing around here. It's unnecessary. It's dangerous. The local community are furious that the project will risk contaminating groundwater and permanently damaging the environment. Many scientists have shared their concerns already, but Santos, the corporation undertaking the project, don't give a fuck. They haven't answered these concerns. They haven't actually addressed how they will um, navigate the very reasonable concerns people have about the long-term environmental damage that this fracking will do to the pillager forest. And of course that doesn't matter to New South Wales state and federal government. They don't give a fuck about the environment or the wishes of the communities uh, you know, in question. They don't really care. In fact, Scott Morrison's government has been uh, using the pandemic um, to try and quietly erode green tape legislation so that once we go at the other side, they can do a whole bunch of projects without this without being accountable or having any kind of you know environmental checks and balances along the way. So this is hardly a surprise. They only care about signing the land away in extraction de- deals with big business. That's why Environment Minister Suzanne Lay has just given final approval to the project. And that's why the protests were happening. Now, demos aren't the be-all and end-all. They need to keep happening. They need to appeal to political power and they need to be interspersed with people taking other actions, whether they writing to their politicians or approaching them at open meetings, um, you know, trying to get their, recruit the assistance of unions, strikes and so on and so forth. And I'm sure we'll get there. But I would ask you to pay attention to the Gamilaroi Next Generation page all the worries of the Aboriginal resistance, war page, or the FIST page, F-I-S-T-T. They were the ones who organised the National Day of Action. There were protests. I went to one in Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne and Canberra. And there will be more. You need to participate in these events. And this very much relates to the subject of 
this fortnight's episode, which is about Indigenous sovereignty. Um, because the response to the Narrabri coal seam gas project, the Gamil means no uh, National Day of Action, the, the effort to try and stop this project, that is an act of Indigenous sovereignty activism. At any given point, there are heaps of these efforts going on all around Australia. There have been for a very long time now. I had a conversation with two absolute legends, uh, Carly Noon and Tim Buchanan, about the subject raised by YouTuber Friendly Geordies of another one. He did some drunken comments about how trees aren't as important as science. He tried to walk some of those back later on, I know, but what he did in the process of saying that was was raise a, a thing that, you know, many of us have seen many times before, um, which is a kind of a, a, a boomer labour wedge approach to Indigenous sovereignty issues wherein um, they're a bit of a pesky nuisance. They seem to be a bit of a nuisance. They'd like to pay lip service to them, this particular type of voter, but they'd also not like them to get in the way, for example, of Daniel Andrews's, uh, you know, electoral uh, uh, prospects. Um, so what I really wanted to do was to talk to Carly and to Tim about the subject that his comments raised um, you know, the substantive issues that his um, stupid comments raised, which is about a clear, broad misunderstanding that he and all the many, many sorts of voters that he represents have about what Indigenous sovereignty activism is and why it's important and why it's important for people who shape the thought of many people, and I do consider him to be one of those people, why it's important that they fucking get on board with it. And why their parties, their favourite political parties, such as Labor, need to do more to get on with it. We had this chat via video, and I fucking loved it. And I am going to release it as a video. You mark my words. Um, but I thought initially I want to get it out there. I want it out there as an audio chat, as a record. Because I think these podcasts tend to have a bit more shelf life and a bit more of a long-term sense than, say, a fucking YouTube video. I'll tell you what, for a guy who's um, made it his business to make a number of long, lengthy YouTube videos this year, I really don't like it. I uh, really don't like feeling like a YouTuber. <laughs> and I think actually it was really nice to get two legends on board um, and, to, and to speak to them about this subject. Um, I'm going to hold off introducing them properly until we get into the conversation because I do that in conversation with the pair of them. But please do check the description uh, for this episode for links to where you can find Carly and Tim online. They are both eminently worth paying attention to. Both people very tapped in with Indigenous sovereignty matters and both just fucking legends, really. So it was a sick conversation um, and I'm very honoured to host it in podcast form as well as, you know, soon in video form. Um, if you enjoy these chats and I've, I mean, we're coming at fucking hell. It's almost the end of 2020. I started this, this, this podcast at the very end of 2019. And I've had so many amazing conversations with so many fucking legends this year. And it's been nice to see my podcast grow very slowly. It's been amazing for me to ask questions of other people who are experts in fields of their own and who care about activism and to hear what they have to say about it. 
and to pick people's brains. It's been fucking amazing for me to be able to shut up and hear what other people say. I know a few of you have resonated with this on board. You know what? Earlier in the year, we did an episode. I talked to the people who run Cafe Gummo. The guys from Cafe Gummo just told me that some bloke came into the bar the other day. He's like, oh, you know, I found out about your bar from the Pork and Feed the Birds podcast. And I was so fucking honoured. I know it's just one person, but it was really sweet to hear that, you know? The people are, are connected with other legends out there in the world by virtue of these conversations that I'm having. It's a slow burn for me. It's always been about that. It's quiet. It's something you make the episode, you put it out there, you may not even ever hear how it's affected people, you know, or what they've learned from it. But I know there's been so much merit to these conversations this year. And long may they continue to occur. If you enjoy the pork and feed the birds or the other work that I do, whether it be the YouTube videos that I make, even though I kind of don't want to in part of my soul, uh, the activisty stuff, the auxiliary shit that I do, um, the posts that I write, the occasional articles I spit out, what the fuck ever, um, then please, you know, for a start, get in and give, leave me a little sweet review on this podcast. If you're looking at it on, say, the Apple um, uh, Podcasts app or what have you, you can leave a review there saying that I'm a sick cunt. Um, and, and, you know, that will make you a sick cunt for saying in a public forum like that that I'm a sick cunt. Um, so it'll be a real sick cunt circle jerk. If you could at least give it a star review, that'd be fucking amazing. Seriously, the role that those kinds of positive reviews have in helping to put uh, the pork and feed the birds before the eyes of more people can't be overstated. It's really, really helpful. If you could share, tell people about it, and if you have plentiful spare clams, then if you could consider chucking but a clam or two my way via Patreon, I am a starving artist slash whatever the fuck I am. I don't like adding titles, but I do do this stuff um, uh, or attempt to for a living, for a starving living, and so um, I would appreciate your support, you know. Um, but not before supporting any of the far more important activist causes that we, that we always talk about on the Pork and Feed the Birds. Long-term listeners will remember that we used to do in the first few months a bit of a gig guide of activist causes. And it's, it's bizarre, really. After months of the pandemic, I'm starting to wonder if I should kick something like that off again, you know? Um, oh, what a year we've had, hey? If you have requests for who you think I should reach out to as well, um, you know what the general terms of this podcast are if you've been listening to it for a while. I like to keep things... Um, I, I like talking to such a broad cross-section of people. The more interesting it is, the better. But I, I, am, I tend to focus on things in Australia. Um, but if you have suggestions for who you think that I should be speaking to, um, then tell me, talk to me. I love it when you talk to me. And if you do, it'll be a rare thing because, you know, it's, again, it's a, it's a quiet project. I've always seen it as that, you know. I get the thing done. I put it out there. It makes me feel happy. You might occasionally hear from someone that, you know, they enjoyed the episode or that because of the episode they went and visited Cafe Gummo <laughs> or something like that. Um, but on the whole, I would always appreciate your suggestions or your feedback. Um, thank you, and I'm going to shut up now so you can listen to my uh, our conversation with Carly and Tim. I want to 
acknowledge that I'm recording this video on unceded indigenous lands. I'm recording this one on Darug lands. I'm on a known just uh, settler term, Blue Mountains. I'm on holiday at the moment, sort of. Making videos is, an, is a, um, a strange practice when it comes to doing acknowledgements of country because uh, you're often recording these things all over the shop. But in this case, we're talking about a conversation. And it makes sense as well because we're actually doing a conversation on the subject uh, of indigenous sovereignty, um, which I'm really, really pleased to be able to do, um, particularly given my guests. Now, um, everyone who cares about online politics in Australia knows that Friendly Geordies uh, recently made comments about the uh, fight to save trees at Jabarung. He said uh, uh, something to the tune of, yeah, we get it, trees, but what about science? So he sort of pitted that particular issue against science. Now, everyone's already had their say on this, mostly along the lines of, fuck you, friendly Geordies. That's a very popular line at the moment. To me, attempting a, a, a YouTube call-out war with another social media vanity egomaniac like me feels a little bit like arguing in a politics Facebook group, you know. It achieves nothing. It's like having unresolved anger issues. So what I want to do and what we want to do here is to address the substance of the issues that it seems Friendly Geordie's comments raised. Um, and I guess we wanna, certainly I wanna get to the lurkers who I think are, are the people that someone like Friendly Geordie's would represent, whether it be his fan base or just that kind of voting block that he seems to represent. But setting Jabwan on the side, at any given time, there's hundreds of small battles just like that happening around Australia. And there has been for centuries now. They all pertain to issues surrounding Indigenous sovereignty activism. And that's what I want to talk about. But as this pertains to Indigenous sovereignty and the sciences, I can't do that on my own. And you probably wouldn't want to hear me try to do so either. So that's why I'm talking to two absolute legends. Everyone say hello to Carly Noon and to Tim Buchanan. Oi, hi. Yamagara, hello everyone. How you doing? Thank everyone? you. Uh, hi Tim, thanks for having a video yarn with me. I like this. I get to be not one talking head in front of a camera banging on forever, which is really, really exciting for me, actually. Carly, you're a, a Gamilaroi astronomer, astrophysicist, science communicator, bit of a legend of a human, and I'm stoked we're having a yarn. Thanks for having me, hey. Perhaps you could tell everyone first of all, I mean, everyone I assume who's watching would already know, but tell me first about what you do and what you study. Sure. So uh, for, I don't know, maybe the past 10 years, 12 years, uh, I've been pretty obsessed with uh, math, physics, astronomy, um, that type of field. Um, and I've spent a long time trying to get multiple degrees in it, still trying to get more degrees in it. Uh, you know how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I've just spent a lot of time uh, talking to people, talking to students, um, traveling around the country, going into remote communities, um, and just trying to really share my fascination and my love for um, yeah, understanding, understanding how things work and um, being able to use my brain in that, that type of capacity as well. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, just really sharing my passion. A big part of that is also talking about, um, I guess, a bit of truth-telling around the field of science, what we know it to be today, um, you know, how 
certainly how I was taught science, not only uh, at university, um, but also the significance of science in other places. So the, I guess what I'm hinting towards is the amount of um, scientific literacy that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had. <clears throat> and in fact, lots of Indigenous societies, um, mm. you know, mm. were incredibly scientifically complex and advanced. And I, it shouldn't really take too much to connect those dots as to why, you know, if you're, um, whether you're a part of a hunter-gatherer society, whether you're, um, you know, more kind of stationary in a particular place, regardless, um, we know that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, and peoples were incredibly meticulous in terms of land management, mm. in terms of supporting ecosystems, um, and just in terms of connecting connecting things in the environment, connecting things that seem really disconnected, but they're actually, um, they can relate to each other in some way and they can tell us something about what's happening in, you know, the chaos out there. So um, I really spend a lot of time trying to promote that idea to people, trying to, I guess, change the narrative around, um, you know, what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, uh, you know, are capable of and, and the amazing knowledges that they have generated and transmitted over thousands and thousands of years, you know, a feat that no other civilization has been able to do. So, yeah, just trying to change up people's idea of, of what science is and how it can be done and who can do it as well. Yeah, of course. And I love that about your platform. It's like a really rad, enthusiastic platform through which you get to talk about these things. But I suppose in this context, we've had this uninvited introduction of a weird dynamic of science versus trees here, uh, which I really see as, I suppose, science versus Indigenous sovereignty or environmentalism. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and you're and someone with experience so. in science. Are these things mutually exclusive? Tell me. <laughs> well, I don't know. Like, I've really, you know, this is this is a huge part of my life, right? Um, you know, promoting the idea that there there is amazing amounts of complex scientific knowledge embedded within our culture and within, um, you know, our ways of doing things. So. I, you know, I'm lucky. I, I was raised on country. I was raised in community. Um, I had, you know, lots of elders around me and lots of family around me. Mm. And I think being exposed to Indigenous ways of, of being and doing things well before going to school really helped me understand those, those differences mm. um, and also the similarities. Um, you know, I think it's it's best not to get too caught up in the differences or similarities, right? Mm. Um, when we're talking about, you know, Western ways of, of doing things and Indigenous ways of doing things, they're very different. But at the end of the day, we're looking at the same stuff. Things, you know, work the same way, regardless of how you're looking at it. Um, so I think it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, um, the achievements that, that, have been um you know that belong to indigenous people uh 
you know, are just as significant as the, you know, achievements or discoveries um, of non-Indigenous people. And so I think, yeah, just just being able to see that, being exposed to it, being familiar with it, it's really nuanced, this stuff. You know, when, you, um, when you're exposed to one way of, of how things work and how to do things, you know, you think that, oh, that must be the only way. Yeah. Um, and it's really not. It's just that we've only been, well, you know, largely most of Australia have only really been exposed to one way of doing things. Um, and, you know, we've been fed this rhetoric um, about Indigenous people and about um, minimalising uh, the intelligence and the... Um, I guess the organization of indigenous people and you know that's colonization that's how that's how that happened that's how that worked and how you know so many people were able to go along with uh you know genocide and assimilation and stuff so you know I think today it's it's really about whether you you choose to continue to um perpetuate that rhetoric and continue to believe in that in that rhetoric or whether you um peel back the layers, try and get a, an understanding of our history here in Australia because we don't get it at school. Um, mm. You know, that was one of the biggest problems I had at school and ended up leaving really early because, you know, it wasn't serving me as an Aboriginal person. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we now have this opportunity for broader Australia to be asking these questions. Um, and, you know, it's a bit of a buzzword at the moment, but really decolonise Indigenous people. Um, you know, we've, we've spent so long having to deal with uh, racism. So mm. I think, yeah, now I think it's a choice. You're either listening or, or you're not. Well, and I think, you know, with more and more representation, even in the sciences and, and you know, consequently in the media from people such as yourself, I don't know that people have as many excuses <laughs> as they used to for that lack of, uh, you know, sciences or political or cultural relativism. You know what I mean? I, I They're able to hear from other people's perspectives, from Indigenous perspectives, because they're out there in the media all the time. Politically, they're being represented more and more with the increasing platform for someone like Lydia Thorpe. So I don't know why... why I, don't, I don't think that um, anyone, be they a content creator or one of their followers, has uh, uh, many excuses remaining. Um Tim Buchanan is a Wiradjuri activist and writer, uh, formerly around Mullabimba ways, currently in Nam. G'day, mate. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. You recently wrote up what I thought was a very eloquent thread on how the fuck Friendly Geordies stepped incorrectly here. Um, can you tell us about that thread? Yeah, yeah. Um, like, I'm new to Twitter, so I just thought I'd give it a burl and, um, like, do one of those long Twitter threads. But... Really what I wanted to do was pick apart sort of the layers that maybe Carly has just sort of spoken about um, Mm. where people sort of couch racism behind a a couple of layers of sort of rhetoric around like objectivity and then, you know, just screaming science into the void while while talking about like their their really hardcore like colonial values around what's important, what's not. That's basically what I saw and I was sort of like, what's going on here? But I think the main thing that I was focusing on was the fact that like, you know, Friendly Geordie's sort of, wanted to position really upfront that um, the sacred, like um, important because um, they might be coming to being post-invasion. 
Um, and that sort of reinforces that this sort of magical thing that when we had invasion that like our culture stops all of us. It's not this ongoing living thing that can expand, that should expand, that should reclaim space, mm. um, that should become stronger, right? And, and that, that sort of those ideas of reclaiming space, becoming stronger, um, are, are really essential to that process of decolonization. So mm. I think Friendly Geordies was setting up like a, a logical framework where it's just sort of like Aboriginal people sort of historicised and put on look at things in a glass box. And the other thing that was really put forward by Friendly Geordies is this idea of science, um, this objective knowledge um, being used as like I am speaking without value, I am not making a value judgement, I am just saying that um, this knowledge is is countable and thus you are totally irrelevant. I mean, but this, this idea of like claiming science up the front has always been used for sort of genocidal programs, right? Like yeah. technology to eugenics to like blood quantum and stolen generations, which is, you know, my history. So when, when, when I hear that and understand the troubles that I've gone through and the disconnection that I've had from my own culture through like really hardcore ideological ideas um, around genocide and, and the lack of value it gives to First Nations culture, Indigenous culture, the world over, and how that's affected me personally. And so when I when I hear Friendly Geordie's just saying science up front, that's one personal to me, but also I can pick it up in logic, being like, this is the historical way that these ideas have been used, and you're just doing it again in this weird spray where you sort of denigrate culture and you sort of laugh at sort of the idea of... Um, of creation stories and and are really important ways of know like knowing where story and lesson and fact are all wrapped into one. Um, that's what that's what was really delegitimized um, mm. around the idea of you know of, of a sacred site um, and it, it not being um, correct because of some absurd legislative framework that isn't even representative of us as people. I think that's the other important thing that um, we take to some sort of electoral um, process, which isn't democratic. And we, and we frame that as fact that it's able to find the fact when in fact it, it's like, it's really open to outside influence of the, like, you know, planning, industrial mining influence, like the like stuff around native title is what I want to talk about a lot today as well. Like we don't, just because it's legislated and it's in colonial law doesn't mean that it's, a perfect system doesn't mean it's a system of science far from it. It's a system of values. Hmm. And that's what we have to talk about. How do we value things? Well, certainly, I mean, you know, the comments themselves are super easy to debunk. Like, I mean, there's, there's other options, uh, you know, there's other pathways in the particular, you know, in the particular case of Jabberung, there's other pathways, there's other highways that they could have built. So, you know, while saving lives. So, so you know, I, I guess in this particular case, we don't need to talk about how the environmentalist approach is the anti-science one, you know, don't be a labour shell, yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, again, going back to that broader scope, this guy was voicing an opinion that I think probably represents a pretty large wedge of, you know, um, uh, Labor voters, and that's what we need to talk about. It's the viewpoint. Hey, you know, in, rooted in these entrenched misunderstandings about how 
I think, about how the only politics is maybe Canberran parliamentary politics and, and how that's the only one that we really need to take seriously. You know, that's the only one where, the, oh, yeah, no, everyone else, yeah, you might have your spirituality and why have you, oh, yeah, that's all well and good, but that's not real politics. The real politics happens in Canberra and at state levels and so on and so forth. And, and if anything threatens the political platform of your favourite parliamentary political party, that's when you need to step in and redress this balance and, you know, to hell with anyone who's, whose culture you, you rail right along the way, it seems, you know. Anyone I, I who has culture. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what Friendly Geordie sort of did, right? He sort of sets up the binary. So, I mean, Friendly Geordie sort of sets up the binary. I mean, that's, that's I mean, and, and it's a lot of, it's what a lot of YouTube gronks sort of do. And like, I mean, we're focusing on, on you know, Jordan, but I, I don't think Jordan's like, you know, in their heart of hearts, like some horrible Nazi racist or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. Mm. It's just, mm. it's just when people sort of, make like sort of the, the racist bedrock comes out and then it's framed in objective knowledge mm. and then you can't gobble it back because you're like a YouTube narcissist. Yeah. That's sort of what I'm seeing with, with, with Jordan. It's like that there's, there's so much like dude bro edgy debate style where there's no idea of not having an ego. There's no idea of stepping back like really earnestly from something you said and, and, and not making just another like, attack video with, with a mistake you've made we yeah. have this idea how i need to look at myself because it's some sort of like brand damage that's how i see like jordan sort of framing it now um you know as sort of like his newest video really frames him as like being attacked by this big media system instead of like the reality was that there was a mass outpour of like critique from his fan base from hmm. like First Nations people across across the country, right? And and again, that's just been used and and dismissed, and and like the whole issue has been reargued and reframed. And I, and I was drunk. That's another big issue here is that the like the way we talk politics can be pretty toxic. And as you said, I don't want to get into like a like a call out video. I don't. This is not unique to to Jordan, right? Um, hmm. You know, and then people are like it's like I oh, don't cancel him. He's not going to get cancelled, right? Um, no, he's very successful and he'll continue to, to be very successful. Well, fuck out, he will. Important you know. to point out as well, like this person was allowed to, um, was socially and culturally allowed, um, you know, in, in Australia and on the internet to be intoxicated, be heavily intoxicated. Um, you know, he, he was warned not to talk about these issues. So it's obviously not something that only comes out when he's intoxicated. It's obviously opinions that um, he has, but they just come out more easily when he's intoxicated. Um, he's allowed, you know, he he gets he gets paid for that. You know, he he gets a plat he gets a bigger platform for that. More people know his name. He benefits from this, um, and and what he's benefiting from is dismissing an entire group of people, the First Nations people of this country, um, and and the sickening contrast in the positions of power there between him and First Nations people who had to watch that, who have to deal with that, who try and fight this on a daily basis and try and change this, um, you know, this colonial narrative and have, you know, 
our ancestors have been doing it for the past 200 years. So um, the, the sickening privilege that this dude has and not only does he get away with it, but he gets paid to do it. Um, whereas First Nations people constantly have to deal with more racism on top of the racism that they've already dealt with. Um, mm. I think it's, I think that for me is, is what hurts um, that we're not protected and, and people can be as flippant um, or, you know, as um, rude <laughs> as they like uh, to a whole people. And, mm. and that's, that's fine. Cause that's normalized in Australia. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about the things, the, the the obsession with parliamentary politics and how that sort of ignores Indigenous sovereignty politics. Um, what you know, what what to you, Tim? Perhaps I'll ask you first. What is Indigenous sovereignty politics anyway? For people who don't know what we might be talking about, <laughs> essentially, it's communities and um, you know groups reclaiming space and and saying that. Um, the colonial system um, and sets of legislation really does not um, have our basic like human rights in mind, doesn't have our cultural rights in mind. It doesn't recognise like our cultural systems, our knowledge systems. Um, essentially, it's, it's, I think Indigenous like sovereignty politics is really essential to reclaiming our knowledge systems, um, mm. our law systems, LORE, uh, health, uh, that's what it's about, really. That's the basis of it is is health and trying to f gain self determination, um, whether that's cultural, economic. You know, uh, I think it's really important to we, like we talk about the cultural stuff, but also the material aspects of it. Um, we have whole areas where it like really like the class dynamics are really intense and it's very socio economically depressed because you know, all of the base material for self-determination has been ripped away. That's country, that's land, um, the ability to make decisions based off um, s simple things like um, the removal of our free movement due to, due to private property, all that sort of stuff. So sovereignty politics really mo so far has really revolved around um, protecting sacred sites and ecological zones, but it needs to expand, right? And there are, and it is expanding. Um, there's some places up in Queensland that are issuing their own passports and and really mm. moving forward in that legal sense. And it's not in like not not this isn't happening in the soft sit sort of soft sit citizen sort of sense. This is actually happening trying to work sort of properly within the legislative system, mostly at the state level, mm. um, to find ways of reclaiming both space, but also like personal power and authority. And I think that's really key. So we see this, you know, we see this happening up at Adani, we see it happening at Deeping Creek. Um, you know, it was essential to the James Price Point campaign over in West Australia where people like on country were saying no to a massive um, liquid natural gas plant, you know, like Chevron, all of the big players, BP were involved in that and they won, you know, yeah. James Price Point was a win. Um, and it's happening down here at, at Japarang, right? These ideas are really essential because the, the counter to it or the binary that people think that we're in is what people like Friendly Geordie's put forward. They're like, it's been ticked off by a political legislative mechanism and thus it must be 100% true. 
that's science. That's that's how they speak about it. This is a scientific method. It's not a scientific method. It's a political method. It's a method that's really couched in self-interest of political parties, of electoralism. It's not just an assessment of of what is right, what is just. It's very far from that, actually. It's, mm. it's really bound up in business interests, in interest of industrialists. That's that, those are the those are the groups that have the largest control on this country. And this isn't even tinfoil hat stuff. We know how much the mining lobby um, and other lobby groups control our politics here. And that's what yeah. I find interesting when when Friendly Geordies like just rattles on about this stuff um, about indigenous culture. But then the next video like upholds like people like Michael West and that independent media network and how much work yeah. they do into understanding how politics works and how decision-making works. It's not applied to us because we're outside of that that view of importance. Yeah. And when people like Michael West can analyse how much dodgy politics is gone into the decision-making processes that affect the community here and, and that's seen as important, but then in the next breath it's the same logic is not applied. I think that's in, intensely hypocritical. Um, yes. It's really indicative of this idea that we aren't important and then like our our knowledges are ridiculous and it's a binary of 11 people versus a, a tree, you know, um, stripping all of the context away from how the decision was made, what the community is saying, who is it important to, um, et cetera. And also the other options, you know, people like Friendly Geordies just want to operate in really dumb shit binaries that they get to frame themselves so they can win the argument. That's it. It's not realistic. And, you know, I guess it, this happens off the back of several decades worth of treating Indigenous issues as though they're a box to be ticked. You know, maybe maybe to, to almost even just to remove it as an issue come election time, to remove that kind of activist response to it, you know, and Labor have been very good at that. The thing for for Friendly Geordies, and, and the reason that I think it, it, this has been such a big issue is because we have a state Labor government down here and people who are such, like, disgustingly electoral sycophants can't handle it when we bring a critique to, to their party, right? Um, you always have to maintain this absurdist outside stance that we can do nothing wrong. That, that is unrealistic. That, that sort of idea is unscientific. It, it, mm. it has no criticality. There's no self-awareness to it. That's what I really see lacking. Like Historically, the Labor government has not been very helpful. They've been anti-progressive. Like we, the land rights movement um, that's moved, like morphed into this utterly toothless legislative framework that we know is native title is, is disgusting. It, communities have the, no legislative right, no legal right to say no to mining, to extractivism. You know, this, this idea that um, the law and the legislation that has been passed through and, and we're here in 2020 is, is somehow a just and well-worked framework that considers community and isn't influenced by, by mining interest um, and, and industry in, in interest particularly is, is ridiculous. It, it is. That, that's, that's who, over the past 30 years, 40 years, have made the framework. They have, they have lobbied and legislated most of the rights of native title away. That's just, that's just the reality of the history of Labor, of Liberal, that's how it is on the ground. So it's not a binary. Um, no. It's not science. It is a set of values that is couched in, in capitalism. Um, it's couched in extractivism. 
um, and it's couched in political donations that uphold a certain power model based on based on that type of economics. Yeah, and that's what it is. Carly, do you think that Indigenous sciences, Indigenous participation in the sciences, can can help address Indigenous sovereignty goals? Yeah, I think it's definitely a part of it. Um, I think acknowledging being for for us and and certainly for me growing up, you know, I I know one of the first things I heard about Aboriginal people when I actually went to a mainstream school was, um, you know, that they couldn't count, they didn't have a, you know, they didn't have a number system, um, like, you know, they didn't invent the wheel, like all these ridiculous comments that um, really just either aren't true or just aren't relevant you know the measuring stick is just a really um look i'm gonna say white measuring stick um you know they just don't apply so i for, for me certainly being able to change that and flip that on its head and um you know prove that that that's just not true you know um whether we look at um, you know, our knowledge systems itself, whether we look at colonial records, like early settler records um, of, of Aboriginal people, um, you know, it's really obvious that the, these statements are, are really just tools to, um, you know, allow the, allow colonisation to happen, basically. Mm. You know, allow a group of people to turn against another group of people. Um, and, and, you know, as Tim was saying before, justify, um, you know, genocide, basically. And so for me, science is, is a really big part of that and reclaiming that. Um, like I was never really in the science world before I became an adult and kind of made mm-hmm. that path myself because I had to, you know, um, being Aboriginal and being a woman, you're not really allowed in these spaces. You're certainly not invited. Um, and, but that was fine. You know, I come from a history of, of women who have to make their own way anyway. So it was like, mm-hmm. all right, I'm really interested in this. I'm kept out of this space. You know, I feel like if, if people like me are being kept out of it, that's probably the space we need to be in the most. And I think it's really important for a number of reasons, you know, that reclaiming and, our, you know, building up our sovereignty, um, changing that that rhetoric um, and really acknowledging our cleverness, you know, trying to trying to strip away um, essentially the lies that have kind of been told about us uh, mm. since colonization and really trying to understand what's there um, and what's still there today. Um, another part of, of this is, um, you know, <laughs> getting a perspective on on humans right and getting a perspective on societies uh that are different to what we currently have Uh, you know our our recent history is so short australia has only been australia for 200 you know 250 so years yeah um when we think about time and human history that is nothing um compared to you know Indigenous, Australian Indigenous history. And and why I think that's really important, it's because we're, this exact scenario, you know, we have um, 
science and all, you know, almost, it's almost framed as like we have progression pitted against Indigenous people and Indigenous sovereignty. Mm. Um, you know, we can't progress if we're being held up by culture. I think that's kind of what's insinuated in that, that binary, that um, science versus Indigenous people binary. Yeah. Um, but I really think that that's harmful for us to be thinking in those terms. Um, you know, not just harmful against Indigenous people, but harmful for our own progression, harmful for our collective society progression. Yeah. Um, if we're thinking in those terms, if we're thinking that how things are run today, our industrialised systems, if we're thinking that they are better than sustainable um, ways of doing things, then it's it's not looking good. Um, I think we need to be able to see an example, a really successful example of how to do things sustainably, how to do things, um, you know, that are going to not threaten our very existence. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think, you know, it, it really is time to recognise that our systems today aren't necessarily the best systems we have. Um, they don't necessarily serve us as a collective, um, they certainly don't serve our ecosystems. I'm glad that you mentioned the um, they didn't even invent the wheel, old line dealt out by racists, because I've always found it to be the most telling line because it, it says that thing, why didn't they do what we done whilst failing to recognise that there's questions that they're failing to see in that, yeah. for example, what is it about the terrain here, the history of the people, the success of people who've managed to live for tens of thousands or more of years without needing that? Why is it that that isn't the case? And it sort of it points to that same kind of myopia that I think we're talking about here, as in you think that you have some sort of, you know, firm framework with which you can... Uh, uh, a, a, obtain a sense of truth, but you, you're really not asking the right questions. And I think we're talking about the same the same political sensibility that means you're going trees versus science or whatever, you know. It's just, it, it's myopic. There's a really interesting history here around this um, didn't invent the, re the wheel sort of line and, and narrative, particularly when it comes to the land rights movement, right? Like land rights was, was going to be this powerful thing that that gave us some sovereignty back over, over our own lands and spaces and countries. Um, but people like the, the Western Australian Labor Minister, Brian Burke at the time, you know, threatened to not comply and even resigned and then ran a campaign around states' rights, which has a really deep racial um, ideology tied to the United States and white supremacism. Yeah. And started saying publicly things like, well, the, you know, these people didn't invent the wheel, they don't have a concept of time, they can't count. These phrases are really embedded in a recent history um, within electoral politics from both sides, Liberal and Labor, uh, in, in propaganda campaigns to deny us basic rights. Um, and I think that's really important. If we're still here at 2020 we, and we still have to have these conversations, um, I think we need to look at where they've come from, how they've been yeah. popularised, who has, who has said them in the past. You know, they need to be rooted in history, much like what we're saying about how we value spaces, trees, sacred sites. I think, I think when we look at the propaganda that's used against us, we need to root it in history as well. We need to see where it's come from and where it's going. Tim, what are the limits of this kind of electoral 
or parliamentary politics in you know addressing or even just understanding real indigenous sovereignty politics what do you reckon especially when we come to australia right there is a very insidious and nasty reality around how power works here how electoral power works here i've been reading some studies from some swedish researchers who look at our system and say that this would be corrupt this would be bold-faced corruption in, in any other country right the revolving door like michael west who again who friendly geordie upholds as this journalistic god um who does really great work michael west has done a like a massive amounts of research and and journalism about this how decision making works in this country how much like dark money it's called dark money um these donation systems like up to 100 million dollars like every electoral cycle that is unregistered donations to the two main political parties. A lot of that comes from massive mining companies. Um, uh, We have this revolving door system, uh, like one week you're a sitting MP around like Aboriginal issues and then like two months later, you're a mining CEO making decisions to strip country autonomy, decision-making power away from First Nations people and, and their countries. That's that's the norm here. That is that is the the bread and butter everyday aspects of our system. So when we want to make change to benefit the ecosystem, not only for like us mob, right, but for everyone. That's the thing that like you know our liberation is sort of tied together, especially when it comes to like class issues and, and climate change and, and looking after fresh water and having, you know, proper proper food and, and all that sort of stuff. But these issues affect everyone and the way that we make decisions within the two-party electoral system uh, are deeply, deeply strange um, and concerning. So they're, they're, you can't really change it that much within the, within the electoral system. We have, we have people like Clive Palmer who make a political party, donate $86 million to themselves simply to split, split the vote to run a propaganda campaign. That's legal here. That's, that's perfectly fine. Um, that sort of stuff should come into your mind when we have someone who is sort of upholding electoral parties as sort of the bastion of truth and science and sort of removing the context of how power works in this country. It's really essential that you mix those two together and analyse what's really happening and, and realise that the value sets around legislation might not come from a group of people who are involved. It might not come from communities. It might probably, probably really does come from vested interests. That's most likely where, like vested business interests, that's most likely where that decision has been made and why it has been made. That's the norm in this country. In part, what we're talking about is an effort to try and address this um, this myopia, this myopic sense of like a cultural identity where, you know, and we, we end up jutting up against each other when we're talking about science versus Indigenous sovereignty. And, and people who represent that kind of that, that boomer labour wedge of voters will continue to run into that dilemma as long as they refuse to work with Indigenous sovereignty activists to gain an understanding of that kind of politics. They'll run into that problem again and again. We can see a growing wedge of people 
And we're not just talking about the Indigenous population, we're also talking about allies, settlers, other activists who are willing to work in solidarity with Indigenous people, a growing wedge of people who understand this type of politics, who understand the importance of activist and Indigenous sovereignty politics, and want to see it reflected inside parliament and they might be a growing wedge i mean all you have to do is to look at the work of someone you know or the presence just even online of someone like lydia thorpe who is growing i see lydia as having a a, a powerful populist left message that also incorporates into it indigenous sovereignty you want proof of that one minute Lydia is in Parliament, the next Lydia is down at Jabwarang actually filming coppers and yelling at people about that issue. And you can see that binary there. That's a growing wedge. And, you know, again, we've talked about the limitations of electoral politics, but at the end of the day, if you continue to sideline this sensibility to sort of talk about, oh, that's not real politics, that's not science, that's not, you will continue to cede power to the dreaded Greens or really to any any new party that would, you know, fulfil this request of this growing wedge or what they want to see in Parliament. You will continue to cede that politics to them because I expect the left here the white left, the parliamentary left, all of the left in Australia, we expect them to get on board with this messaging. This pesky thing where we demand a sensibility that incorporates Indigenous sovereignty, it's not fucking going anywhere, is it? It's not like we're going to go, oh, all right, then don't worry about that. We'll just roll over, vote for someone at the next election. Labor, whoever it is, are going to have to get on board with it or this growing wedge is going to start ceding power to whoever is going to listen to these concerns. I find it interesting the use of the word wedge because it's it's also like a, a word that, um, you know, Jordan used. And, and this is the, the issue, right? So Jordan just frames to his viewers that the, the Japarang issue is, is just an electoral wedge. It's, it's not actual people on the ground striving for their own continuation of culture. It's just this some um, attack dog, um, this electoral attack dog, uh, instead of the real struggle it is. I think people like, like this, they short circuit when people try to build power outside of the very narrow electoral bubble, right? Um, people like electoralists and labor sycophants can't seem to conceive of people actually wanting, wanting to protect their sacred sites and, and build community power. Um, and that's sort of essential to the sovereignty model, right? It's like we are building our own politics. And I think that's when, when, when we use the word politics, it doesn't mean two-party system. For me, what a, a real analysis of that word is actual on-the-ground context, who is affected and how those decision structures are made. I think the real politics and the real progressive prototyping of politics when we talk about sovereignty movements is essential to you know our continuation but also like addressing climate change like how do we get out of out of our abusive power models surely expanding sovereignty and self-determination for us but also for for affected communities is essential um, you know aboriginal communities are not the only people being over overridden by mining and the effects of climate change. Like it's happening to, to everyone. I just really want to center that, you know, this story is intertwined. We need to 
understand that the, the modes of sovereignty that we're bringing to the table really do benefit a large amount of people. And to see that sort of be strengthened and, and argued for as a way to tackle sort of a neoliberalism, abusive extractivist modelling, capitalism and climate change is, is the story. This is where it's at. This is where we get to prototype a new political model. It doesn't happen. It won't happen in the chamber, right? That's a slow-moving beast that is tied to the old mechanisms of power and extractivism. Sovereignty models is is where we get to do it. It's where we get to build. It's where we get to experiment. And that's that's essential. I like as well what you said about how, you know, I mean, just that striking difference of treating politics as though it's like a four-year Super Bowl that occurs versus, you know, the, the ongoing politics of activist or sovereignty activism or what have you, you know, like sort of treating politics in that 24-7 way, boots on ground, looking at local causes and contributing to them versus this thing, idea of where you have to have this attack dog fight once every few years to ensure that your dog in the race gets up. Um, it's, it's a striking difference and one that you wonder in the end if with persistence will probably favour the 24-7 activists. That's what we'd like to see anyway. See you next fortnight.